0: The College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg
1: and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.
0: Welcome back. Season wrap-up show of the College Football Fix. I'm Dan Walken with Paul Meyerberg. Doing it a few days after the national championship game. Mostly my fault. Uh, I have not been 100% since uh, the championship game on Monday night. And honestly, uh, my voice was, was pretty much gone for a couple days. So I uh, just could not really physically get a podcast done until now. But uh, on the mend, everything's good. Back in Atlanta... And uh, Georgia is your national champion, 65 to 7 over TCU. Uh, look, um, I had hoped for a good game. I thought maybe there was a chance TCU could, you know, at least for a quarter, quarter and a half, maybe a half, really hang in there. But inevitably, Georgia was going to win this game because at the end of the day, they just have better players really at every position. And sometimes it's that simple. And you hate for a college football championship game to get away from a team the way it did for TCU. Uh, but, you know, there's no fairy tales here. George is a machine. TCU was a great story. And really, there was just no point in the game where it was competitive. Paul, what did you see?
1: Um, sometimes, Dan, you go to a football game or you watch one at home or, or, or you're in the stands and. Like by the end of the quarter, even into the second quarter, you start to feel confident about I can, I can like I believe this is how the game is going to roll out. That happens quite a bit actually. Maybe not the games that you and I go to or cover, but it happens a lot in college football. You you get a good picture. Dan, this game was over in eight place. Yeah, that's unless we count the punt, then it's nine. Unless we count the kickoff, then it's ten. We're making TCU look better here. We're up to ten place. A kickoff, a three and out, a punt and a five yard touchdown drive. And to be fair, it really wasn't even until the fifth play that we knew that. I think we had an idea about the second Georgia play of that opening drive, that it was gonna be uh, not a great game. TCU made it 17-7 and credit to them. I feel like they should have taken a picture of that scoreboard like they did, like Lee Corso did at Indiana when they led Ohio State at halftime. Because all from there, Dan, was the biggest whipping on a big stage in the history of college football. And unfortunately for TCU, an unbelievable story, an unbelievably great Cinderella tale, this is kind of going to be their their defining moment. As we talk about them in 15 or 20 years, we're going to be talking about TCU, the fact they lost by 58 points in the championship game.
0: Yeah, look, um, the first play from scrimmage, I believe, well, the first play from scrimmage for TCU was a false start, so that wasn't great. True. But uh, the next one, I believe Max Duggan had Savion Williams open on on the right side of the field. We only remember a play like this because it happened right at the beginning. And I just made a mental note. He overthrew him like, and it's one of those moments in, in a game you typically don't even pay that much attention to. But right then I was like, if you're TCU, that's a play you have to make to be competitive in this game, because you're not going to get, you're not going to get a play every series. You might get one every two or three series where you can really hurt Georgia. And, yeah, they did get it on, you know, two series later when when Georgia made the defensive mistake. They get the touchdown to pull within 10-7. But, I mean, literally the first play TCU runs from scrimmage, there's an open receiver. You could get a big chunk, 25 yards. Maybe, you know, that sets up your first drive. And, and Duggan just overthrew him. And, you know, look, um, I thought Georgia, by a couple touchdowns, way undershot it. Actually, was surprised how many people picked TCU. It was like the classic hard overhead pick, I guess. But what in who the picked, world
1: would... Who picked TCU? And I'm not asking you to name names. Is there an outlet where um, someone actually yeah, picked were, TCU to win the game?
0: There were some people from our friends at The Athletic I saw who, who, picked, uh, wow. who picked TCU. Let's um, see. No, I mean, again, I'm not picking. I've, I've made bad, plenty of bad picks oh, yeah. in, in my day, as as we all have. It's, it's what happens. But, yeah, like, if you just think about the Fiesta Bowl, okay, and think about what it took for TCU to barely hang on to beat Michigan in that game. TCU had to play the game of its life. Michigan had to screw it up eight ways to Sunday. TCU barely hangs on. And guess what? Nine days later. They're playing a team that is kind of a similar version of Michigan, but really just does everything better, has better players and better coaches. That's what Georgia is, right? They kind of approach things similarly to Michigan, like just from an overall philosophic standpoint, but they have a more creative offense, a better quarterback, better receivers, better running backs, better on both lines of scrimmage. So what in the world would ever give anyone the thought that TCU was going to win this game? Um, for Georgia, it's a second straight national title. I don't think there's any question right now. They're the team in college football that, you know, like people are trying to make this argument that, Oh, Alabama still has one more run in them. you know, say, maybe they do. Maybe, maybe like, I'm not going to like totally discount that Alabama can get it back together and win another title under Saban. I don't think it's going to happen personally, but yeah, it's, Alabama's still recruiting at a really high level and all that stuff. It's all good. But to me, like at this point, you got to prove that you have what it takes to knock Georgia off. Like they're just at a different level than everybody else. And I understand like they could have lost the Ohio state a play away. It was really close. Yeah. In 2021, what happens if Jamison Williams doesn't get hurt in the championship game? Like there's all these sort of alternate histories that you could do with Georgia and maybe they're not sitting here as defending national champions or or back-to-back national champions, that happens at every level of every sport. And one thing could go differently and history could change. That's just the way it is. But the narrative is written by the winners. George is the winner here. And one of the reasons why they're the winner is they have a bigger margin for error than anybody else. They have a huge margin for error. And I think if you take it a step back even further – It basically proves something that I said 10 years ago, which is that if Georgia ever got its act together, it's the best job in college football. It's the easiest place to win in college football. And look, I'll admit to this. I was skeptical. Kirby smart was going to be that dude. And the reason I was skeptical is because every other Nick Saban assistant had gone on to do Mm bubkus before Kirby smart. Like they had all been bad. and, there's a whole other theory there that we can get into in a second, but like I was just wrong on that. Kirby is that dude, and he's proving it, and he's got everything in line. Like right now, Kirby Smart's a better coach than Nick Saban right now, and he's twenty years younger, twenty three years younger. Yeah, like, just about. Um, when's I don't think this is gonna end anytime soon.
1: No, I don't. I don't either. Uh, okay, so. Quick question. Yes, no. Alabama over under .5 national championships under Saban, you taking zero or one? I'm taking zero. Okay. I just wanted to clarify. I think that's really interesting. Certainly, if he does win one more, and we'll just touch this and leave it, if he does win one more and goes through Georgia to win it, uh, it'd be pretty cool for him to end his career that way with one more. Sure. I think uh, on the topic of Alabama, Dan, um, I think Alabama has skewed to a degree Our ability to really take historical stock of what a couple teams have achieved because we've used we've seen Alabama win five and nine years and we're like, well, okay, that's the new normal. If we think about Georgia in a more broad historical perspective, right, played for it in 18, played for an SEC championship. Played for it and won it in 21 played for it, won an SEC championship, and won it in 22. So we're looking at a five-season span with two national championships, a third national championship game appearance, uh, I believe three SEC championship game appearances. I know he's only one in two in those games. That might be the one black mark on this resume. This is the beginning, possibly, Dan, of, of really an amazing run by a program that, like you said, is finally um, all systems go. And at times under Mark Rick, there was something missing, whether it was personnel or it was the toughness that they play with under Smart. I'm with you 100%. I would just take it one step further with Georgia and say, I just think this is kind of getting started. Um, and if you look at the next 10 years, if if Kirby Smart stays and they don't lose their fire or their toughness, yeah, I think he's got it kind of figured out. And we're talking 0.5 for Alabama. If I said 1.5 for Georgia in the next 10 years, would you take the over or the end of it? Over. Yeah, I think you're right. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they win three more in the next 10 years. That's just an arbitrary number. It just feels like for them not to win more national championships based off what they bring back in 23 and what they've created and this conveyor belt that they've kind of unleashed on college football, it would almost be a disappointment. You know, They've got something cooking here that is – Really, really impressive to watch, and not just because of TCU, but look at the entire breadth of the last twenty-four months—just wildly impressive for Georgia and for Kirby Smart.
0: Yeah, I remember writing a story toward the end of Mark Rick's tenure. I don't think it was his last year; it might have been, or, or it was either his last year or second to last year. And it was kind of a big-picture look at at why Georgia hadn't quite gotten there, you know. And everybody remembers the run, Herschel Walker early 80s they were really good won a national title and then it had kind of receded a little bit you know you had Ray Goff uh you had Jim Donnan where they were they were good but they weren't elite you know and then Mark Richt comes in and and Richt had a really good long successful run but he was always sort of a cut below a cut below Alabama you know whoever it was I mean I when Rick was was first starting out i think it might have been florida you know and then it it went lsu and then it was florida again and then it was alabama mm-hmm. and so rick kind of survived all that and he just kind of stayed like right right there underneath you know they'd win they'd win 9 they'd win 10 they arguably should have won it all in in 2012 they played a great sec championship game against alabama they they got stopped on the doorstep of the goal line at the SEC championship game, if they win, they're playing Notre Dame, and Rick has a national title, right? Yep. So the, it would have ended then. But even even through there, you know, they had a lot of great players. They they got really good recruits. They had you know think about the court, some of the quarterbacks they had, you know, Aaron Murray, Matthew Stafford,
1: they were they had, yeah,
0: yeah, they had awesome you know players, great great quarterbacks. Um, but the program was sort of stuck mentally in. We're a little too good to get down in the muck, the way some of these other schools operate. We're Georgia. We're this. We're genteel. We go to Augusta National on the weekends, you know, and that, that's kind of how it was. And you know, they didn't have a practice facility. Like if it rained, if it rained, they couldn't practice at Georgia. They had to go either to like some high school, or sometimes they'd they'd bus down to Flowery Branch, and the Falcons would let them use their indoor facility which is like a you know 40 minute drive from campus um, you know and then like at the end if you remember with Rick they brought in Jeremy Pruitt yeah. remember that to be the defensive mm-hmm. coordinator because Pruitt had been with Alabama he'd been at Florida State with Jimbo and Pruitt you know raised all this hell and he was empowered to you know shake some shake some trees and and that didn't go very well because it just clashed. I mean, Rick was very laid back. He wasn't very demanding on the administration. Um, so it was just time, like it was time. And I, I'm taking you through all the, this alternate history because a lot of people just forget the way it was, you know, but underneath the surface, so much had changed about the Georgia job. And one of the things that had changed was literally every one of Georgia's big rivals had won a national championship in that time? Every single one. You know, you draw a three-hour circle or a five-hour circle. Clemson had won one. Uh, Florida State, uh, Tennessee in 1998. Even Georgia Tech had won one in in '90. You know, it was just like so. What what was what was missing here? What was the deal? And the state of Georgia had changed dramatically. Go back to 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. A huge population boom follows into the state. The high schools in Georgia, the suburban high schools, not just inner city, but all over you know the the area, out in you know Alpharetta and Marietta, booming high school football. Families moving in. People, um, you know, kids were private coaching was exploding. So you just had like all these dynamics. And if you could ever sort of harness it within the right within the state to just get it all in line, you've got the best players on lock. If you've never been to Athens, Georgia, I think some people would argue it's the best campus setup in the SEC. It's it's kind of the coolest college town. You know, it's very easy, it's very attractive to bring people in from out of state and and they, you know, they really like it. It's a place they want to live. Great campus, great game day atmosphere, great um, you know, great stadium. So, like, once you got this all in line, to me, this was the best job in the country, the best job in college football, better than Alabama, better than LSU, better than Ohio State, and like I said, like I didn't know if Kirby was going to be the guy to do it. The track record of saving assistants had been bad, but he obviously learned the right lessons. He came from a high school coaching background in the state with his father. And all credit to them, he figured it out. And it's just really impressive what they've done now over a pretty long period of time.
1: Yeah, do we want to give – like you lay out all the factors that could have made Georgia great. I don't I don't get that you're actually detracting from what Kirby achieved or has achieved. It's more that you actually give him credit and that he was the one guy who was able to tap into all that Georgia had to offer either by virtue of his personality, his experience, or just simply the fact that Kirby really cares. I know I know that sounds stupid. Every coach cares. They're making millions of dollars, and they want to succeed. I just think that maybe Kirby cares a little bit more than other people because it's at his alma mater.
0: Well, that, maybe, that there's maybe.
1: maybe there's something to it. But listen, like you're not taken away from Kirby, not to, no. not to speak for you, but he's actually been able to take all the things that could make Georgia great and bring it together, and I think that is actually a tremendous credit to him because I just made it sound easy. I don't, uh, and you can you can tell us I don't think that was as easy as as I just made it sound. To I think bring it all together.
0: I think there's a lot of coaches, maybe not a lot. I think there's a significant number of coaches who could have won a national championship at Georgia. Okay, I, I don't think it's a small number because I think the job is really that good. And by the way, guess who else knows the Georgia job is that good? Nick Saban, mm-hmm. okay, everybody knows who's, who's been in the SEC, who's been around it, that that is the job if it is operating at 100%. But I'm not sure a whole lot of people could do everything Kirby's done to get it in this position. And when you say he cares, I, yeah, like I do think part of it is that, that he's a Georgia guy and it's his alma mater. But, I mean, that dude is really – he is all about ball,
1: mm-hmm.
0: all about ball and um you know he's he's a little bit he's interesting because sometimes you're around kirby and he seems like a totally cold fish there are other you know and, and sometimes he won't even look you in the eye like he'll, he'll just sort of talk through you
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then there are other times where he seems pretty engaging and interesting and even human in ways that maybe saban sometimes doesn't um but there was a Recording going around after the game of his pregame speech. Now, I, I actually don't think that was the pregame speech before the championship game. I, I could be wrong on that. I don't think it's been actually determined where that pregame speech came from. It to me did not sound like that sounded more like a, like Tennessee or something or, or, <laughs> Flor- or Florida. Because mm-hmm. when he mentions thinking about those MFers 365 days a year, I I don't think that was. I don't know. I could be wrong. It just, that sounded to me more like a speech from some other game, but like you hear in that speech, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard it. If you haven't just, you know, type into Twitter, Kirby pregame speech. It's pretty easy to see why players respond to that. It's very sort of instinctual.
1: Then I wonder if uh, for Kirby and for Georgia, for Georgia, people who have been there a long time, this just feels like revenge you know, for 30 years, give or take, just to say 30 years, Georgia was, was never a punchline except for Steve Spurrier, but they were the team that, you know, Florida made Georgia their, their punching bag and their, and their punchline.
0: Yeah.
1: Ray goof, you know, for Spurrier for an entire decade, they were a joke. Um, The Alabama dynasty Uh, A lot of people think, and I believe, was kicked off by a primetime win against Georgia. I think it was 08. The the black jerseys, right? black jersey game in 08. Uh, In 2012, as you mentioned, uh, Alabama won two in a row, got into history because Georgia couldn't convert from the four or whatever, had that blocked the tip pass and all that. This almost feels like they're unleashing hell on people because they felt like for 30 years that folks were unleashing hell on them. So... Kirby smart probably knows that history. So if there's an added aspect to that of him being, you know, exponentially more invested and more driven, maybe there is a side to it. But I do believe that Georgia as a program is, um, it's almost like karma in reverse. They got pooped on for a long time. And now they're, they're the ones who are going to start stepping on people and they have for two years. And we can talk about it briefly as towards the end of the podcast, looking at 23, Everybody believes – I mean, consensus number one right now for next season, Georgia. I mean, we're eight months away, but I would be shocked if anyone else but them are number one. They'll probably be number one with a with bullet.
0: You know, another thing Kirby did that I, I just don't know if it's gotten the credit that it deserves. And we can talk about Stetson Bennett in a second, but hiring Todd Munkin, to me, is the thing that really – Really changed the trajectory of this. I mean, think back to 2017. You know, they, they're playing with Jake Fromm. They're, you know, 2018. I mean, they're losing Justin Fields. Justin Fields is, is languishing on the bench mm-hmm. behind Fromm. He goes to Ohio State, you know, becomes one of the best quarterbacks in college football. They seemed a little bit plotting as a team offensively, they seemed a little bit old. And it it, it just was, it it sort of felt like they wanted to be dominant defensively and do just enough to get by on offense. And that really wasn't the recipe for winning a national title in this era, the way college football is played now. Mm -hmm. So Kirby goes out and gets Todd Munkin, who had been with Mike Gundy, goes to Southern Miss, turned around Southern Miss. Which which had been in a really bad place had had that his third year at Southern Miss they were they were quite good yeah. he gets hired to go to the Tampa Bay Bucks to be the offensive coordinator he's in the NFL for a few years he comes back to Georgia 2020 was sort of a wash because nobody really had you know an off season a real off season he just you know everyone was kind of doing things in that COVID year by the seat of their pants but he really had an opportunity to put in his offense going into 2021. And obviously, there were questions about the quarterback thing. Everybody was pining for JT Daniels. It ends up being Stetson Bennett, and we all know what he accomplished. But, like, that offense is damn good. It's well-designed. It takes advantage of the talent they have. It comes at you from all these different angles. It gives defensive coordinators so much to prepare for and think about, the way they can just vary their angles of attack, the way they can present uh, different looks and – you know, show you a little bit of eye candy, Um, you know, the formations uh, that, you know, whether it's two tight ends, three tight ends. I mean, they they just do a lot of different stuff and they get the ball to Bowers in creative ways. Like I know people don't look at Georgia and say, man, that offense is fun to watch, Mm -hmm. but I think if you really just sort of break it down, that offense is fun to watch.
1: Absolutely, and you wrote about this, Dan, before, and I think if if folks read that and were taken by surprise by it, it's because preconceived notions of what about what Georgia is on offense, and I hope people got to see on Monday night they're a lot different than what you think. They are multiple. They are deep, like you said, and they use guys in a variety of different ways, um, whether it's McIntosh or Bowers. You see them as runners, as receivers, as blockers. They're going to end this year, like I think they're going to – I think they're third nationally in yards per play, which is the ultimate metric of an offensive success. That's crazy to think about for Georgia. So I, I do think that Monken has had an impact on Georgia that is as deep or deeper than the impact Lane Kiffin had on Alabama when he came in and brought that offense into the 21st century. Um, what I like the most is what you just mentioned and what you wrote about. They don't just – they have all these guys and they use all these guys. So you're yeah. TCU and you go six deep in your secondary, maybe, even though you're pretty good on the back end. And all of a sudden, Georgia's got nine guys who caught a pass, seven guys who ran for at least 14 yards. You got a QB who is 18 of 24 or 25 for 310 and four touchdowns with no picks. It was an offense that did not get the credit that it earned this season and uh, put on. An exhibition in a championship game so both sides working in concert it kind of gets down to the question of which team would you take 22 or 21 Um, I would probably take 22 over 21 despite the losses on defense because this offense has risen to a completely different level
0: yeah now George is gonna have a little bit of transition I mean we'll see if if Todd Munkin is back next year you know, I'm sure he'll have a lot of opportunities, whether it's NFL or whatever. He can sort of write his own ticket at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darnell Washington is leaving, so that's one of their key tight ends out. Uh, they'll have Bowers coming back. Kenny McIntosh is leaving. Um, but uh, And obviously Stetson Bennett. We'll see. I, I would imagine Carson Beck will get first shot at quarterback to start next year. Uh, do we think that without Stetson, they're going to dip? I mean, look, people can just say that he was a game manager. I think that's stupid. Like, mm-hmm. he proved he's a lot more than that. The thing about Stetson Bennett that I think is really underrated is his quick decision making set in motion so many good things for that offense. Like, he gets, he saw it, he got the ball out fast. There were times during the year where maybe he made a couple bad plays or, or took unnecessary risks, but that's not as as common as people think. That a quarterback is just as, as decisive and quick as as he was. Um, you know, is Bet going to be able to run as well as as Stetson Bennett? Like, there's some question marks, I guess, but I, I do trust that that they're going to have a lot of firepower next year.
1: Yeah, they're going to be explosive. They also have the schedule in September. Oh God, they don't have it's, that, it, it's ridiculous. They're
0: going to be they're going to be ten and zero going to Tennessee. Like I think absolutely. that's obvious.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that start allows them to 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 kind of get things together on offense. But losing Bennett is enormous. Um, not just his ability to process, like you said, but his steadying calming presence for an offense that relies on so many different pieces needs it needed to have a, a, a hinge point and he was the guy at the center of it all so there's going to be a drop off um, certainly and I think people maybe in a year or two will start to uh, you know respect him and appreciate him maybe more than they do now not Georgia fans but more nationally um, Stetson Bennett then truly has evolved from being the beneficiary of an outstanding roster to being the key reason, if not one of two or three key reasons why Georgia has won two in a row, you know? So more than anything, the way that he showed up in these games, these four playoff games, I think is really part of his legacy. And obviously Monday night, he capped it with, um, wasn't quite Trevor Lawrence against Alabama good, but one of the best performance game, best championship game performances I think I've ever seen at quarterback, for sure.
0: And I think he'll play in the NFL
1: no doubt about it is that even up for debate anymore i mean i don't know where he's going to land in the draft i mean just guessing maybe he's five to seven but damn i mean this dude just makes plays he under, he knows how to run an offense he knows how to command a huddle in a locker room I, there's no doubt in my mind Dan, that he's going to play at the next level uh, and be a solid backup if not a, if not a serviceable starter for eight to ten years
0: all right so where does tcu go from here
1: They've got a lot of work to do um they've got a lot of work to do not just in terms of you know replacing duggan and replacing quentin johnson and you know replacing kendra miller or whoever else they lose um they've got a lot of work to do just in terms of continuing to build this roster not just to get back to this point but to win the big 12 again or play for the big 12 again to win another 10 to 12 games um they've got a lot of turnover to go through so my guess for for them dan is they're going to be somewhere between 15 and 20 in the preseason poll and will probably end up somewhere in the back end of the top 25 at best. They're probably a 9-3, and 8-4 and four team next season um, based off what they bring back, based off a tougher Big 12, um, and just based off the fact that they're not going to sneak up on anybody. So I think we need to take a step back on TCU. They're not getting back to a championship game next year. No. Uh, maybe not ever again. Um, but it uh, doesn't take away from what they did. I just They've got a lot of work to do. Uh, to stay, just stay in the conversation. And I think that might be a lot to ask them in 2023.
0: One of the losses you didn't mention with TCU is offensive coordinator, Garrett Riley, who was hired by Clemson. I don't know if it's officially out there, but it's, it's, it's happening. It's been reported by numerous sources at this point. Uh, He is going to Clemson to be the offensive coordinator. Dabo Sweeney gets rid of Brandon Streeter and, Garrett Riley is in and obviously he's little brother of Lincoln Riley uh, did a great job this year at TCU now look I think TCU was running Sonny Dykes' offense right okay Uh, that's obvious and I don't know I don't know how how good of a coordinator Garrett Riley is I, I really don't but obviously for Clemson this is a big move and it's something that we have been calling for all year, which is go outside and find your next Chad Morris. You know, Clemson just was stale. It's a bad performance in the bowl game against Tennessee. The offense was clunky all year. Time for a new approach. Is this going to be the right one for, for Davos Sweeney?
1: Yeah. Like you said, this is, it's been about 10 years since Davos made a move like this firing Napier, hiring Morris was the last one. Um, There are two sides to this, and both can be true at the same time, Dan. I don't think TCU is going to struggle losing Garrett Riley, but I also think Clemson is going to benefit. Um, He's young. Yeah. And I think it would really behoove Clemson. I do think they're going to do this. It would really, really, really be helpful for Dabo to go out and get Jeff Scott into an analyst role, into an off-field role for a year or maybe two if that's what the interest is, and just have him be a father figure to Garrett Riley to guide him through this process because it's one thing – to be at SMU or be wherever or be at TCU and be under Sonny Dykes and have him be the guy who's kind of – he's not hes not the puppet master, but he's dictating to you what the scheme is and the general formation of it and, and the broadly what they want to achieve. And it's another to walk into the room and own the offense. And I think that's going to be an adjustment period for him, not to mention you can easily – in fact, I'm going to say it, TCU easily uh, trumps Clemson in terms of skill talent. Um, in terms of what they had in 2022. So he's not going to be working with the same degree of guys. I mean, he's got a nice young QB. He's got a, a good running back, but the receiver core needs to be beefed up in a major way for his offense to run at full at full tilt. But I think it's a good hire. Um, can't blame him for taking it. It's a chance to spread his wings, become a, a multimillionaire. Um, but I don't think TCU is going to struggle in 23 because Garrett Riley's not there.
0: Yeah, Davo Sweeney, can be stubborn at times and he can be frustrating, but he's not dumb and he knows why he gets paid. Mm -hmm. It's to win, it's to win championships. And he saw the writing on the wall that what they were doing was no longer going to be acceptable. So you make a big move and we'll see if it works out. I think it's a step in a positive direction. Uh, let's see what he does on the defensive side. I think there's less urgency to make big, big changes on the defensive side, although I do think you know maybe you know we'll we'll see over the long haul whether they did the right thing to replace Brent Venables. but um yeah, I think Clemson fans have have plenty of reason to be happy right now because that was just not a very satisfying end to that season, even with an ACC title. and uh, I think at least now there's there's some hope that they can. They can get back in the mix. Um, other news, huge news off the field. Kevin Warren has stepped down as Big Ten commissioner. He will be the new Chicago Bears president and CEO. Uh, the possibility of this had been reported. I don't know, a couple weeks ago, I think mm-hmm. by ESPN. You know, I, I had heard. I, I think everybody who is plugged in in college sports has known for for quite a while that. Um, that Kevin Warren was not going to be a, a long-termer in that Big Ten job for a variety of reasons. Uh, he was going to do that media deal and then try to get the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. That was going to be, I think, the play for him. And there's been different things said on different sides. You know, He was coming into approaching the last year of his contract. Was he going to get extended? Um, there's a lot of people in college sports who – do not like Kevin Warren. He's got a lot of enemies right now. Uh, I think he got put into a tough spot coming in to replace Jim Delaney, who'd been there for thirty years. Comes in right as COVID happens. There were obviously some missteps during COVID, and a lot of that's on him. You know, Kevin Warren did not um, play ball with the other leagues when. There was supposed to be a spirit of togetherness. There was supposed to be some cooperation among everyone to sort of move in lockstep on whether there was going to be a season in 2020, or how far it was going to get delayed, or whether they were going to whatever they were going to do. And the Big Ten just sort of up out of nowhere says, "All right, we're we're not going to have a season in the fall. We're going to try to play in the spring." And the Pac-12 followed, but the SEC. And the ACC said no, we want to play, and the Big Twelve sided with the SEC, ACC, and then the Big Ten had to backtrack. And look, that was a, that was bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, if you remember, that was a crazy time. I mean, you had Donald, oh, tr- you had Donald Trump. I mean, I remember Kevin Warren talking to me about him being in the doctor's office one day, and like he's getting phone calls from the White House, and like Donald Trump's on the phone trying to talk to him. Oh gosh, you know, it's just a disaster. I mean, the whole thing's just a disaster and he he had I mean, there were missteps there but i also think like you know college sports is is this weird thing right and the people who know nothing other than college sports think a lot of the things that go on in college sports are totally normal and totally cool and then a lot of people who come in from outside college sports the first time they come in and get a look behind the curtain they go, what the hell is this? Why does it? Why does this operate this way? This is ridiculous. This is stupid. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I just maybe the the fact that Kevin Warren was so disliked, I'm not sure if that reflects poorly, more poorly on him or more poorly on the the establishment of college sports. Um, maybe it's it's a little bit of both, but. I, I had an appreciation for the fact that he came in and just looked at this and said, "This is stupid. I want to try to run this thing the way Pro Sports runs it, which is just this is just a bottom line business here. And it doesn't matter who gets screwed. we're We're, we're gonna do what's best for us. Um, now him leaving leaves the Big Ten in an interesting spot. But I, I just sort of reject that, like Kevin Warren's, this, you know was this was so bad for the Big Ten, so bad for college sports. You know, Jim Delaney is, like, held up as, as this great example of, of, you know, great leadership for the Big Ten for, for three decades. No, let, me, let me tell you about Jim Delaney, all right? Jim Delaney, for decades, for years, for decades, said no to a college football playoff, you know, and then was grudgingly dragged into accepting a playoff with four teams. But no more, no more, no more than four. No more than four. Finally, at the end, as he's walking out the door, he says, Yeah, maybe we need to expand it. <laughs> all right. He said the Big Ten was going to go to Division Three if players yeah. got paid. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he, guys like him and, you know, God rest his soul, Mike Slive and, and Mike Trangisi and all these guys, they just, they, they, they slow played progress. They, you know, they, they, would let out a little bit of the rope to, to make people happy. You know, they, they went to court over O'Bannon, the Oban. If you go back and read some of the amicus briefs and, and the, the, the testimony during the O'Bannon trial, were, you would, it's embarrassing just how like behind the times and out of touch. These guys were, you know, mm-hmm. Delaney, you know, fought tooth and nail for the bowl system and the Rose bowl. Then he, he leaves the big 10. He goes to work for these guys as a consultant, he pockets a 20 million dollar bonus on the way out the door. like look, Jim Delaney, nice guy, and certainly you can tout his accomplishments if you want, but like his tenure represents everything that that got college sports into this bad place it's in right now, where like everything's got to be fixed, it's cronyism, it's lining your own pockets. you know he, he I mean you know Delaney, like they wouldn't got Rutgers for the big Ten. Rutgers. Mm -hmm. You know, in Nebraska, like, eh. Like, again, like I just like these guys didn't these guys didn't see the big picture about where college sports was headed. And I just don't celebrate them the way, you know, people have these gauzy memories of 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 the way it was. Um, I think college sports, frankly, would have been in a better place now if in the early 2000s, people like Kevin Warren had been in charge. But that's not the way it went. Kevin Warren got a look inside and said, this is crazy. i I got to get out of here. And um, he's going to go to the NFL. So we'll see what the Big Ten does. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, but that's sort of my long-winded way of saying I don't think Kevin Warren is is nearly as bad as some people want to make him out to be.
1: Yeah, I think that what happened in the COVID year kind of clung to him and it made him a lot of enemies, not like – he became like Roger Goodell, like Kevin Warren would show up places and fans would boo him.
0: Yeah, well, they had protests in the parking lot of the Big Ten offices.
1: Yeah, uh, okay. I mean, <laughs> I mean, grow up a little bit. Um, if Kevin Warren's job was to um, spearhead this latest media rights deal and then leave, um, they just throw him a parade. Uh, there's a lot of zeros on the end of those deals that he's that he got Big Ten schools as part of a team for the Big Ten. So I have a hard time saying that he was a failure by any stretch of the imagination. Um, When you're looking at the projected earnings for the Big Ten going through the rest of this decade, they're with the SEC and that left everyone else behind. So kudos to to the Big Ten and kudos to Kevin Warren. Um, Where they go from here, Dan? I mean, the first name you hear is Jim Phillips. I just don't know how realistic that is. Former Northwestern AD, who's now in the ACC. He's been there for what, a year and a half? Just about? Or even less.
0: Yeah, Phillips was the guy that for the last part of Delaney's tenure, everybody would have said, "Yeah, Jim Phillips is the likely successor." And then he doesn't get that job; it goes to Kevin Warren, and then Phillips ends up leading the ACC. I mean, you no, know, did you go back to him? I, I think Gene Smith is another name that you know. In terms of, all right, if you're if you're if you're looking at this like a coaching search, where if it doesn't work out. You typically go with the opposite type of person mm-hmm. the next time. You know, you, you get the outsider in Kevin Warren. So now you, you maybe go the insider. And there's no more ultimate insider in the, in the Big Ten than, than Gene Smith. And that would be a very popular sort of, you know, make the ADs happy, make the presidents happy type of hire.
1: Yeah, it seems to me, Dan, like it's almost, it's almost assured that they're going to go with someone who's connected to the conference. They're not going to go to the Big 12, uh, you know, get the guy from New York City kind of move. So I think you're right. Gene Smith makes a lot of sense. Gene Smith is um, enormously influential at his level of, of standing as an AD across the country. He's very influential inside the Big Ten on a national level for rules and, and on various committees. So that would be a really good hire in my mind. And, yeah, I do think it's one that would be greeted with open arms. So. Um who knows how it's gonna play out. I mean it's gonna happen soon, I would think, but yeah, I don't I don't I don't really know except to say that um would not surprise me at all if it was a sitting Big Ten president or or, or athletic director.
0: Yeah, and, and one thing that I do think will now unfold from this transition is the end of any talk that the Big Ten is gonna further expand. Um I think Kevin Warren had interest in adding more teams to UCLA and USC, and the fact that he kind of kept hinting at that was seen around the country as, as destructive and destabilizing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I can basically – I can I could tell you I had another Power 5 commissioner uh, tell me a few months ago, um, you know, how, how – how upset they were at Kevin Warren and the way that he was approaching it because they felt like they felt like his comments were, were causing a lot of angst and worry throughout the country that just kept everybody on edge unnecessarily and was preventing a lot of progress from happening. I think now there's not going to be nearly as much of an appetite probably to expand. Um, now, you know once UCLA and USC start out in in the big Ten, if people sort of believe that maybe it would just function better if there's more teams either in you know out west or whatever you know maybe that changes, but I just don't th- I don't think that's going to be imminent I think they're I think we're kind of in a in a more solid place now uh, yep. so I think that's probably going to be helpful moving forward
1: you know one other expansion thing then um You know, these championship games at the playoff, you usually get a variety of people who come from these various conferences and are either there to attend or they're there working on the side and whatever. One thing that I talked about and and was I found to be a topic of heavy conversation was North Dakota State. Really? Um, Yeah. And I had a chance to speak about that with a couple people in a group of five league, even in the Mountain West. And I think there is genuine interest on both sides of that arrangement when I say Mountain West and North Dakota State. Uh, We all know North Dakota State. They played in the championship game. They got bombed by South Dakota State, which in itself is a good story that you don't have time for. But North Dakota State um, is phrased to me by someone who who was close to that program and had spent some time there, that they're looking across the country at places like Kennesaw State, um, at UTSA, at these programs that had either zero FCS existence, like a Kennesaw or or UTSA, or – Did not have anywhere close to their success on the fcs making these moves and having immediate success getting right into conferences having their futures kind of mapped out seems to me dan that there is genuine interest on both sides of that um, mountain west and north dakota state to maybe have some conversations about north dakota state leaving the fcs i think that would be an outstanding addition we're ways away from this coming into play but would not surprise me in the next two to three seasons of North Dakota state finally made that move. They just start, they just opened an indoor, I believe back in maybe October, just opened that um, they've got the infrastructure to support a move. Obviously uh, uh, they've, they've got the success. They have the coaches. Um, if they do make that move, the people who would be against it are the Iowas of the world and the Wisconsin's who might see their recruiting land kind of driven into a bit, but um I think North Dakota State uh, is a is a program to watch in expansion. They're not going to trigger anything major in terms of, you know, a national domino effect, but that's a team to look out for with the Mountain West. I think that would be a great addition for them in the next couple of years.
0: It certainly seems like there's a lot of schools that have an interest right now in, in trying to move up. Um, we'll see kind of where that goes. Meanwhile, the NCAA convention has been going on this week. Uh, the new president, Charlie Baker, who is uh, – the governor of Massachusetts is replacing Mark Emmert. He's been making the rounds. Emmert has still got, I don't know, a couple more months in the job before Baker officially takes over. Um, you know, it would have been ideal to meet him. It sounds like there's some, you know, it sounds like he's been pretty engaging and has been pretty uh, open and, and you know, kind of making making friends with the media, so to speak, down there. Um in San Antonio, where they're doing the convention, we'll we'll see. I mean, I, it's debatable at this point how important that job really is, or what 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 the next NCAA president should be do, spending their time on. Uh, you continue to hear a lot of talk coming out of NCAA circles about needing Congress to act on name, image, and likeness, which will f- filter into a story we'll, we'll talk about in a second. Um, I don't know. I mean. I watched uh, last week as uh, House Republicans were trying to, with their narrow majority, elect a speaker and what (laughs) that entailed. Um, I just don't see it. I I don't see there being any sort of consensus that will get bipartisan support in a – Extremely fractious and narrowly divided House of Representatives, and then go over to the Senate, where the Democrats are in charge. But you need to have sixty votes. I don't know. I, I just I fail to see this happening. I I just I think that's a bad strategy by the NCAA.
1: Yeah, I think depending on DC to do much nowadays uh, probably is not your is is not the best plan of action for anybody. But, yeah, it seems like uh, Governor Baker is going to be spending a lot of time in D.C. Uh, trying to put this together. I wish him the best of luck. Yeah. Um, I don't know how that's going to happen. But you know what? what's weird about our, um, our broken society from a political standpoint? Like, this could be the one thing. Like, you, they could. People could agree on this. Like, it's conceivable coming from different angles of it. It's conceivable, um, but doubtful. I don't really see it, and I don't want to see it. I don't want to spend any time thinking about it. I want to think about politics as little as possible. Please keep the politics out of sports. Um, so uh, good luck to all of you guys. Um, I'll be looking at some depth charts. I don't, I don't want to talk about
0: it. All right, I mentioned NIL. Let's just touch briefly on this uh, story that caught my attention this week involving Jaden Rashada and Florida. He's a quarterback who I guess had originally committed to Miami. He flipped to Florida in uh, November. And apparently he, he did sign with Florida. He signed a letter of intent, but there was, there were some rumors this week that he, or some reports, I guess, not just rumors reports that he had requested or wanted to get out of his letter of intent. Uh, that there might've been some issues uh, between Rashada and, I guess his father's sort of running the recruitment and um, whatever NIL deal he signed that was I don't know I mean connected to his recruitment with Florida um, there was a report that it was the number 13 million dollars was attached yeah. to it um, I don't know I mean I don't know what's going to happen I, I guess Publicly, they've denied that they asked out, but the father did provide a quote to one outlet saying they have some issues to work through with Florida, whatever the hell that means. Um, Look, if you're a fan or if you're a fan of Florida, like I get how frustrating and and just exhausting it is and how unnecessary all this drama seems. Um, And I guess what I would say is... Two things. One, there's no recruit who's worth $13 million, okay? Sight unseen. Never played it down to college football. Um, The likelihood that all of this, this drama or whatever is going to be worth it in the long run seems extremely low to me. I also think kids and their families who are making decisions just based on NIL are probably going down a bad path that's not going to result in the long-term outcome that they want mm-hmm. I also just don't believe 13 million dollars is is the actual number um, I think all of this speaks to how confusing it is to be in this Nil landscape the lack of transparency nobody really knows what's in these deals you know there's there's agents who are playing schools against each other mm-hmm. It's not a fun place to be. I mean, this is the area, this is the world they're in now, and this is the result of not really planning very well for NIL to happen and, and the NCAA not being prepared to actually enforce regulations around NIL. Uh, but I would also say maybe this is a little bit of an anomaly, like just the way this particular one is playing out. And if you're Florida, like, and they're trying to stick you, just move on. Yeah, That's what I would say. You know, because like I said, it, trying to like rescue something that's falling apart over money, like that's just not going to work.
1: Yeah, I think. Um, well, a couple aspects of it. Number one, um, if you're a school like Florida, you you got to have your ducks in a row. Like sure, you can't sure. you can't allow this to happen. So you got to wear some blame. Now the thirteen million dollar thing. Maybe eight or nine days ago, I would have said I would have fallen out of my chair. And even still, thirteen million dollars sounds absolutely asinine. Give me a break. But it's not that ridiculous. I'm thinking about Drake May. The number I heard about Drake May recently was five million dollars. Um, when it comes to Drake May and his immediate future of his college career, is five million. So is thirteen million ridiculous? Yeah, but. If we're getting into the millions here, then maybe maybe that's just a slight inflation about over what he's actually been offered or what he could maybe make over his four years or three years. And if that's the case, then we've entered into a a new playing field. Um, I think this past season, there was some research that was done maybe by uh, um, influencer or open doors, open doors. Right. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. That said company, that The average, company
0: that deals with NIL.
1: Right. These yeah. the, One of these companies did some market research and came out with numbers that said the top earners on the FBS level are making maybe a quarter million or made a quarter million in this past year. It seems to me that like guys are making more than that, or at least we're seeing some sort of inflation based off, you know, over a four-year earning period. Um, If you're this kid and you think you can get $13 million and it's not from Florida, then, yeah, you're going to want to back out of your NIL. And I and you're Florida and you're that fan base. Yeah, it's going to hurt and it's going to sting. But um, we've created this market until we solve it and cure it. You got to live with it and we got to just get through it, you know. So if he hits the open market and some other school wants to offer him six million dollars or whatever, do it, but gamble with your money at your own risk. I mean, who has any idea if this kid's going to pan out at all? And we're paying them that kind of money that that seems like we've crossed a, a bridge right there that that could lead to a dangerous place
0: well one thing about these deals because we, we don't really see them right is how much of it is guaranteed how much of it is upfront how much of it is tied to certain metrics how much of it is is tied to playing time or uh, all that stuff and and it, it definitely creates some confusion because we just don't we don't know you know we just don't know exactly where where the money is goes and how much of it and when um i think everybody would benefit from from sunshine on this stuff but there's just no regulatory framework for it right now and so you're going to have some of these these messy situations um hope florida can figure it out but uh for billy napier coming off the season he just came off, off of at florida it's it's tough because you know the fans there are not they're not real happy with with the Early returns from the from the Billy Napier era, and you know they they need they need to show something soon. Well, Florida's not the type of place to sit idly by and let him have four years to show show some progress. No,
1: and if you think it's rough now, um, just wait until you're like three and two and bring in Graham Mertz into Knoxville, you know, or whoever yeah. wherever you go as you're starting QB. He's a accomplished college player, but that's. You're not going from 6-7 and seven to 11-2 and two with Graham Marks as your QB right now at Florida. So, yeah, tough going for Billy Napier. And I don't think this first 12 months have gone according to plan for him or for anybody else. He's he, In a sense, they almost have to get this deal done because they need him that bet. And he's got the bargaining power. Rashada.
0: Any other stories we need to hit on before we get out
1: of here? No, I don't think so. Very quick, um, we did our early top 25 Like I said, Georgia number one. I had Michigan number two. A lot of that depends on Harbaugh coming back. My guess right now is that he does come back. Yep. Um, Alabama three. I have Florida State number four. Dan, we'll talk about them a lot come September. But I thought Florida State as a team to maybe throw uh, roll the dice on. um, Real quick, made this year.
0: Real quick on Florida State. I I saw a tweet the other day that uh, Jordan Travis. They they, Florida State wanted to send him out to California to basically do like. Heisman buzz, media rounds, yeah, and uh, he decided to stay back and you know lead the first team meeting. Blah, blah blah. It's a nice, you know, it's a nice story. It you know shows how committed he is. I mean, but I did, I didn't think it's funny. Like, like do these people think it's still like 1996? Like <laughs> you do not. Why why are you why are you doing like Heisman? Buzz in in January before the season. That, that's just not the way this stuff works anymore. Like we see no, all the really. games. We see all no. the games. All right.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, he was supposed to meet. Uh, I was going to meet him on Sunday. I got an email from uh, uh, FSU Derek Satterfield, their SID, saying, "Oh, we had a something came up, and we had to cancel." I think their plan was like, "Hey, let's sit down with yeah. four or five different people for a half hour and just chit chat." I loved it. I thought it was great. But yeah, it's it's not like that anymore. I don't even get like uh Eisman gifts in the mail anymore. You know, like a Jordan Travis very very you know, rarely yeah. bobblehead. So get back that's what I'm talking about. I've got a pair of batteries that I got from Nebraska for Amir Abdullah, maybe in I don't know, it feels like maybe nineteen ninety four. Double A batteries for Amir Abdullah. I still use those batteries. I think I just put some <laughs> into my remote like like a couple of weeks ago. So send me stuff. Send me stuff and maybe we'll talk about it on the podcast. So, I have a so, I've I have a
0: Drew Lock bobblehead.
1: I do too. And I got an Ed Oliver bobblehead. He's riding a horse, uh, Oreo, his horse. So send me the bobbleheads. Send me a Jordan Travis bobblehead. Get that done. I'll yeah, put it thi- on. I'll put it on my my little shelf.
0: Those things are like great. Whatever people send out for Heisman buzz, it's great memorabilia. But again, like that's just not the way this award works anymore. The, you know, back in the day, where people actually didn't watch very many games or didn't have access to that many games. And it was just, like, super important to be on the list when the season started, to have your name on the list. Yeah. Like it's just that's just not the way it works anymore. So whatever. It's fine. It's harmless. But I just thought that was kind of funny.
1: Yeah, there also used to be a time, Dan, when, when you and I, among others, would decide who was the national champion. Yeah. We used to have so much power. Imagine it's 1990. It's January 2nd. I'm sitting down with my pad. I might as well just call over to Boulder in Atlanta. Like, what are you going to give me? What are you going to give me to make your team number one?
0: Well, I mean, back in the well, back in the day, back in the day, the way this would have gone pre pre BCS was Georgia would have played TCU in the Sugar Bowl, right? And then they wouldn't
1: have played TCU. They would have played. Who knows? Maybe they would have played Clemson or whoever they would have no, played. Wouldn't, right. wouldn't
0: it have been the Big 12 champion? But
1: they would have played Kansas State. Oh,
0: that's right. Yeah, they would have played yeah. Kansas State.
1: Beaten so, by 59 right. or 57 points, maybe. So
0: Georgia would have played Kansas State, and they'd have been undefeated. And then Michigan would have played Utah in the Rose Bowl, and they'd have been undefeated. And we'd, been, we'd have been sitting here saying, is Michigan or Georgia the real <laughs> national champion? Those were the days. Those were the days of yeah. real stupidity. Mm-hmm. At least now we know who the best team is. The real national championship game was the Peach Bowl.
1: Absolutely. That was the national championship game. Now we know who's the national champion, and we we argue over whether the 18-year-old kid's going to get $13 bucks. The world is a better place. We have really moved forward as a culture of college football, no doubt about it.
0: All right, on that note, we will end the college football fix. We'll talk to you all at some point. Don't know when. Hopefully uh, not too far from here. But uh, great season. Glad to get to the end of it, and all hail Georgia, back-to-back national champions. For Paul Meyerberg, for our college sports editor, Eric Smith, I am Dan Wolkin. We'll see you soon. The College Football Fix Podcast.
1: With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolkin. This is the College Football Fix
0: Podcast from USA Today Sports.